0: My name is Hana and I live in Lahore, which is a city in Pakistan, which is next to India for those of you who are more familiar with that country in South Asia. <laughs> uh, I'm an economist by profession and uh, I work in academia and research, mainly on gender issues. Um, so that, that's basically my background.
1: How did you get into that line of work?
0: Um, it was kind of in, in in university, I got inspired by a couple of professors who were doing research, like primary level research in, in in a district in Punjab. And I found working with data fascinating. And there's a huge niche in Pakistan about people who actually work with data. There's a lot of like there's more sort of practical policies happen, but there's not a lot of impact evaluation happening, which is like a much bigger deal outside especially rcts etc like randomized control trials i hope i'm not using too much technical jargon for everyone on this podcast uh but basically the point is uh that in my in pakistan a lot of policy happens but there's not actually measurement of who the policy is impacting who's it who it is excluding etc which i felt through my studies and my practical work was was a very important aspect of any policy any reform any activity happening in your country if, if you don't know what the sort of impact it's happening there's not much point in doing it
1: right can you, can you give me an example then of um, the, the, the way that um, policy comes down from government that, that that you would be sort of monitoring and like when you talk about data what are you talking about
0: So it can be any sort of data. Um, What sort of example could I give you? So, for example, uh, there's been an inheritance. There've been inheritance reforms which are trying to ensure that women get their rightful share in their parents' property after the parents die, Um, legally, and even religious, even religious scholars don't dispute the fact that daughters should daughters and widows should have a share in property when a man passes away. But uh, in reality, even though the government is really pushing revenue officials to do this, in in practicality, you don't really see this happening in most parts of Pakistan, that women are getting their equitable share. So if, if I hadn't done research on the impacts of the reform and interviewing women to see whether they were actually getting their share or not, you would just assume because the law is pretty clear on this that women should get their share. And the government has actually put the burden on its own officials to sort of ensure that that is happening. And the government is doing that. The government official ensures that the land is transferred to the daughter's name. But then the girl gives up the right to her brother after it's been transferred to her. Wow yeah so I mean, like on paper you would it would seem that that reform is having a huge impact, and Pakistan is very progressive where female reforms are actually introduced, but in practicality, you don't see a lot of women benefiting from it
1: and and what's the what's the driver for for that sort of
0: progressive reform? I think also more about awareness, I think a lot of women uh so Uh, A friend of mine who's a lawyer and works a lot on women's rights. So she's an LLB who doesn't really practice law, but does a lot of legal research and works with women or human rights organizations. Uh, She was telling me about this training that she does, That is very basic training, 10 men and 10 women who they tell them about their basic rights, etc. So she makes them answer a short questionnaire that do you think... You are that you should inherit land from your father, that you should inherit land from your husband. And she was like, all the women in that group always answered that we have no right over their land. So it's like a social brainwashing in a way that you think that, oh, you know, I've already moved on. I've gone to my husband's house. So I have no claim over what my parents have when they pass away.
1: And do you do this work in the context of, do you work for like a local um, non-government organization or?
0: Yes, I work for a Think Tank, Centre for Economic Research Pakistan. Uh, we work with a lot of uh, academics in the States and the UK, not Australia. Sorry, uh, we don't have any inroads there yet. Um, so we work with a lot of academics who are like at Harvard or Duke or you know University of Chicago, and uh, they basically help us with the frameworks. And we try to engage um, the government sector or the government agency which would benefit the most from our research, and try to engage them in the design as well as the results, and try to um, also get them to sort of design projects around us, you know, like involve us from the uh, basic stage. Uh, so that we can do a proper impact evaluation. Of
1: so, so then um, do you come up against, uh, um, I'm going to say it, like opposition? Or, or...
0: Obviously, I mean, like some people are not very open to the idea, but more and more bureaucrats are actually very progressive about that, about this. And the main hurdle actually is that, uh, so if you do a rigorous impact evaluation, it takes a very long period of time. Like you have to study the program over a longer period of time, say more than a year. And normally, like bureaucrats don't have that kind of time leeway. They want some quick results which they can use to sort of show their constituents that, you know, we're doing something. We're working towards you, you know, so there's like a time lag between how much, uh, you know, sort of academic value there is in it to sort of follow the program, but also to see the practical results. Because obviously the people you're interviewing, if they don't see an impact, then for for them it's sort of a lost cause to entertain you.
1: So then at, at a local level, if you're going out into, into the field, into um, various non-urban settings, um, yeah. Do, yeah. You, do you have to do a lot of persuading or are people surprised when you explain to them that that women have um, particular rights
0: no everyone is very uh, the rights are pretty well noted there there's no government official there it's more so in families even families don't dispute that the women's right to it exists they just feel that agriculture is no like land is the land market is not a place for a woman you know there's a lot of parda there's a lack of mobility for women in pakistan I mean, like, there are very few women who may be aware enough, educated enough, have enough independence that they can run things independently, even businesses, etc. Even in uh, sort of more urban cosmopolitan settings, there are very few women who are actually running sort of big businesses here. I think the main business that I've seen sort of women run in Pakistan is the education is education schools. Um, you know, schools primarily because there's a huge gap between public education and private education in Pakistan. So, um, a a lot of women who are educationists who were teachers before, they've sort of come together and uh, 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 introduced different kinds of schooling which sort of to fill the gap in education over here.
1: Right. So, um, this podcast, you know, I had the idea to to talk to different people about uh, what's happening to them um, in their various places that they are all over the world. So you're in Lahore. How, how would you, before we start talking about the impact of the coronavirus and the, and the pandemic, how would you describe Lahore to me? What's it like as a city
0: Lahore is a very vibrant city, which is why what's happening nowadays is is kind of sad to see. So Lahore is a very, so it has a lot of historical implications, a lot of historical linkages to the Mughals and to the British, you know, to the colonial times as well as prior to that. And there's lots of history and background, um, architecture, art, you know, sort of linking it to the past and to the present. Um, so it's a very vibrant, lively. Um, now there's, a, there's been a huge push towards sort of uh, opening up its artistic side. So there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, art festivals, on literary festivals that we just had in January, February. So uh, especially the springtime is very vibrant as Lahore goes um, lots of things happening lots of events happening lots of food festivals lahore is big on its sort of traditional food dishes and has many many food streets some modern some traditional uh, so in that sense lahore is a very happening very cosmopolitan city where lots of people come and go some people only come here for work uh, but it's it also has a lot of linkages to the past because there are a lot of established families living in lahore like it's like it, it's not like a sort of transitional city in that sense even though it's cosmopolitan like i i'll go to a dinner or something and out of the 10 people there i'll probably have gone to school or college or something with five of them or my siblings did you know so like everyone is everyone sort of knows everyone so
1: so you grew up there
0: yes i grew up here right.
1: and and what was it like when you were growing up i mean what what do you remember of your um, your your childhood growing up in that city.
0: Um, so I went to a convent school. So uh, so the girl the popular girls' school at the time when I was younger was Convent of Jesus and Mary. And my brother used to go to Histon College, which is this very popular boys' school. I don't know if you guys have heard about it. It's a boarding school as as well as um, uh, a a day school. So the, most of the boys from uh, the better families go to Histon. And uh, so there was, so I I just remember like the convent HSN sort of everyone's sisters were in convent and everyone's brothers were in HSN. And so, you know, all the gossip was flowing back and forth. The two schools are also like literally seven minutes apart. (laughs) So, and um, what else? Um, So it was like a very like, I mean, like, we were very shielded from the rest of the world in our schools. Our schools didn't in- engage in a lot of, like, political matters, et cetera, because they were, like, old institutions. They'd been around for ages, and they were totally focused on education, not sort of involving kids into—because, like, a lot of political, um, like, coups, et cetera, like, a lot of political stuff happened when I was younger uh but we were sort of like in school that was not discussed which i which i actually when i went to university like we used to discuss these things more than when we discussed it at school. and and so
1: when you were at school are you talking about the 1980s or
0: no we like the
1: 1990s 1990s okay okay
0: so a lot of like changes were coming about in lahore and in pakistan in general politically and otherwise but, like, in school, like, the teachers or, like, the administration, they just kept themselves. Like, there was a very, like, a straight line that, you know, we, we are just educators and we are not going to discuss what's happening outside of these walls. Right,
1: right, okay. <laughs> um, so, if you describe Lahore as a, as a very vibrant city, um, what is the situation there now as we speak?
0: I mean, like, it's a it's a very dead city right now they've put up barriers everywhere and uh, so they've uh, they've made a map of lahore in which they're trying to sort of determine the hotspots, like where there are more corona cases and then in that area like they're trying to have people not move between localities Mm -hmm. so that they can sort of contain it within a locality if it so happens that there's more virus over there So, like, if I have to get grocery, I will go to my local grocery store and not go to some other locality, which has never been the case in Lahore. Like, everyone goes everywhere, does everything. Um, So, and uh, this is, like, springtime over here, which is normally, like, very involved with people buying clothes and coming into color and, you know, lots of outdoor activities. Because I don't know if you know what the weather of Lahore is like, but we have a very cold winter. And a very hot summer. So these these two three weeks are pretty much like what everyone uses to do everything. Uh, because the the weather is much improved. We're in, in two to three weeks, our holy month is also about to start, Ramazan, because we're primarily a Muslim country. Um, so people are just trying to enjoy these two, three weeks, and now suddenly there's like so much silence on the street. And I live in a very I live on a very main road. And I can literally go walk on that road these days, which is something that I've never been able to do.
1: <laughs> what was your first inkling of the, the pandemic itself um, reaching Pakistan?
0: Um, there was a lot of discussion about what was happening in Iran. And we have a lot of people who go to Iran for religious Sort of migration, etc. There are a lot of sites over there which they go to visit. We call it Ziyarat. Um, So that's when we started to hear from Balochistan that it's sort of coming. There was a lot of people also actually from Dubai and UK. So um, over here, all the schools don't have spring break at the same time. Some of the schools have it earlier and some have it later. So in early March, some people had gone for their spring break. So when they started coming back and then we started hearing reports of cases because obviously when they went there, they heard about it. And then they were also, start, they started checking at the airports, et cetera. So that was our first inkling that something is up in Pakistan also.
1: What measures have the government taken at, 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 at various levels, both at national level and then at regional or city level?
0: Um, I think mainly the structure of how it works. I mean, like a lot of things are sort of most of the decision making is being done by provincial governments. There is sort of discussion with the national government on what they should do and what they shouldn't do. Uh, But mainly all the announcements are being made by provincial governments. And in that, they immediately shut down the schools which I think was a great idea because schools, I think, is a real breeding ground for germs because these kids come from here and there and, you know, there's so many sort of enclosed together in a, in a room that I think that's one of the primary breeding spaces for germs. So that was a very good move on the part that as soon as they felt that something was wrong, they immediately shut down the schools. Um, a lot of parents were already worried and were thinking of not sending their children to school. So all in all, I think that was a good move. They immediately shut down work spaces also. So they said as many offices who can work from home, they should start doing that. So that was also a good move. And then in a couple of days, they just moved to a complete lockdown. It's been about three weeks now. And uh, we've heard it's supposed to end on the 14th, but we've heard they might be extending it because certain consultants that they called in have said that it would be best if we lock down for 28 days to contain it the most. Because obviously, uh, the healthcare system will be overwhelmed if so many people immediately fall sick
1: and were people generally responsive to the idea that they had to do this uh, social distance distancing or um not so get together in public spaces we're, or were they were they sort of skeptical about it I mean, what's the response from the general public you think
0: the response from the general public has been good but the thing you have to understand dominique is that so um, there's a lot of inequality in Pakistan. Well, that was that, so that goes to so my next question, like,
1: actually. So go ahead.
0: <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of inequality in Pakistan. So obviously, a majority of the population is living on or below the poverty line, or like, you know, right at the edge. So they're obviously more concerned. They, they They're still worried about Corona, but they're also worried about, you know, sort of dying of starvation. So they have multiple problems. They don't, and they most of them are daily workers, you know, who, who like come into people's homes, who come into shops as salespeople, you know, like they do daily work, they get wages per week, per month, etc. So they're worried about missing too much work. So they obviously did not want to sit at home, but a lot the everyone was encouraged to sort of tell them that don't worry, give them money, and you know, let them stay at home. Um, the majority of the problem also seems to be in major cities, not in sort of rural areas, which are like huge landed areas, which are generally open. Like the problem seems to be in cities where people are sort of crowded together, you know, are more likely to pass it to one another. So that's why in, in like smaller cities, you don't see that much of sort of restrictions in place. The more restrictions are in place in larger cities. And
1: has there been any um, help offered to those more vulnerable people in the population, you know, by government?
0: Definitely. uh, Definitely the government is also offering them help. But at the same time, a lot of public um, sort of groups have stepped in to help these people now the government is trying to sort of organize those things so that the same people don't keep on getting help you know that everyone gets help and as i mentioned before that our holy month ramazan is coming up and one of the major sort of key pillars of our religion also is that in the month of Ramadan you're supposed to help the less fortunate so people are trying to because everyone is already thinking along those lines. People are trying to sort of organize that money and those resources into helping people these days instead of waiting until Ramzan.
1: And, and how has your daily life changed then?
0: I mean, like it has changed a lot because, you know, like you're, you, the, my, I have a daughter, she goes to school, I go to office, my husband goes to office, you know, we're running here, we're running there. My parents live in the hall. There's, you know meeting people doing other things grocery shopping like lots of food delivery sort of grocery delivery services have sprung up suddenly in lahore which we never initially had people here are more of like just go and get it yourself uh sort of thing we don't like having things delivered that much because we're not sure we're quite suspicious people we're like we don't know what they're actually going to bring us (laughs) (laughs) so we prefer to like go buy our own fruit vegetables meat etc but a lot of these Um, grocery delivery services have sort of sprung up I am I still like sort of plan and I've just done one sort of grocery trip since this whole thing started and just go get it myself Um, because they're also overwhelmed all of a sudden you know um, all these grocery people because suddenly people are ordering from different different places all over Lahore
1: yeah How, how have you coped with it yourself like personally I mean has it been challenging in any way for you
0: I mean, like, I'm kind of an optimist. I try to look on things on the positive side. And it has been difficult. It's especially been difficult to explain to my daughter, because she's five, that suddenly why you can't go to school or why you can't meet, go meet grandma or why you're supposed to, like, wash your hands, like, 20 times a day. She's just like, you know, my hands are, like, <laughs> I, like they're, like, all burnt, mama. Like, I just keep washing them with soap all the time. <laughs> so it's been difficult to sort of explain to kids and like elder people you know like my parents because uh, my father goes to the mosque a lot so it's it's kind of like we had to like tell him that oh my god you have to sit at home now you know so it's been kind of more challenging trying to explain to other people me because probably because I'm in academia and like obviously I've been reading all the news etc so I was more sort of cognizant of all of this and I you know I, I just keep telling myself that obviously we have to stay at home it's for the greater good and social distancing is what is going to contain this uh, but it's harder to explain to sort of like the elderly and to children like what's happening.
1: Have the mosques remained open?
0: So they, from last week, they've put in a rule that no more than five people can pray in the mosque at any given time. And that includes the people who are working at the mosque, which is already five people. So in a way, essentially, they haven't closed down the mosques. But they're saying that the people who live in the mosque, like the prayer leader, you know, the people who help set up for prayer, the, the Mozin, the person who gives the azan, the call to prayer, They all should be in, uh, they can all pray in the mosque, but no one else is allowed to. So after that, we've seen a sort of dip in people. Uh, There was already a dip in people going for Jummah, but now Jummah doesn't seem to be happening. From this Friday, they put in a rule that from 12 to 3, there was kind of a curfew. So no one was allowed outside of their houses to sort of prevent people from going to the masjid to pray. Uh, but the problem is that in another two, three weeks is going to be Ramazan. So then in Ramazan, it's a big deal that people like going to the mosque to pray because it, it, it's a part of the whole community feeling. So they're trying. They're, they're already talking to religious scholars. They're doing sort of television programs to encourage people not to uh, s- sort of um, go into the mosque, etc. And how this Ramazan, they, they should pray at home. <laughs> The problem actually is, Dominique, that, uh, you know, abroad, like like there's going to be Easter on Sunday now. So a lot of people uh, like you and I are talking, a lot of people will visually sort of um, can attend mass, etc. But my sort of parents generation or as I was talking about a significant part of the population is poor. They might not have like so my parents might own an iPad and have access to the Internet, but they wouldn't know how to log on to you know, like a, 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 a sort of a Zoom chat or a Skype where, where they can see what's happening. Um, similarly, a large percentage of the population doesn't have access to internet or laptops or tablets or this sort of thing. So for, for them, they actually physically have to go to places to actually have that feeling that most of, that most of you abroad can normally just sort of access from your laptop.
1: So I have a couple of other things I wanted to ask you. Just um, are there any stories that you've heard from around Lahore that really made you sit up and take notice of this?
0: Um, Like uh, specifically, are you talking about something like...
1: I'm just wondering, and you may not have an answer for it, and that's totally fine. I just just wondered um, if there was anything that... that
0: I mean, like I've spoken to a couple of friends who are in localities where... Uh, they've had they've had complete shutter downs like their stores, their pharmacies, you know, even like essential services have been closed down because within their communities, there's such a high spread of coronavirus and they're really scared. They, 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 they don't want to get out of their gate. You know, they're worried about groceries, et cetera. Um, but they're just staying inside the house because, you know, obviously they, they don't want to contract it. Uh, so so that has been pretty scary that, you know, you you don't even want to step outside your own gate uh, because you're so afraid. And they were like, there's constantly police on our streets, sort of policing the streets to make sure people stay in their houses. Then there have been a lot of videos issued about how they're going into people's houses and sort of dragging them out when people make complaints. So, you know, like there's a helpline where you can say that, oh, I think so and so house there's someone uh contaminated so you should go check up on it and people are kind of worried that so they've having to so even if they take people to hospitals they have to sort of keep them under lock and key because people try to escape from there so I feel like there's there's been a lot of fear generated about the coronavirus and I and I'm glad that now in the media they're sort of like at least in the western media they're trying to sort of uh, discuss different aspects of it of the vaccinations of the fatalities etc to sort of calm people down so i think there, there is a lot of fear factor involved in this
1: where you are in lahore is there a fear of of the police
0: it's not a fear of the police so much is it that oh if they find out that i have corona they're going to put me under lock and key obviously you know no one wants to be under lock and key.
1: So one other thing that I want to, two other things actually, and then then I'll let you go. Um, What's your favorite thing about Lahore as a city?
0: I think the vibrancy of Lahore, like it's so sort of diverse, like you'll be going down and you'll see different kinds of people doing different things, there'll be people playing the dhol, there'll be like different kinds of festivals happening, different kinds of food available, like there's just like a whole sort of melting pot of cultures, etc., sort of available in Lahore, which I like. And it's a very lively city. Like it's one of those cities that never sleeps, never wants to sleep. Even if you get out in two, three in the morning, you'll definitely see people like moving around, lights on, people in restaurants trying to shove people out. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) They go home so that we can close the restaurant. (laughs) You know, people sitting at their friends' houses till like all hours late at night. Uh, so it's a very like vibrant, happening, social, uh, sort of lively city. But I mean, like I would say that m- about most of Pakistan. By the way, we're a very hospitable, very like we like having a good time, right? <laughs> basically, and so I think a lot, a lot of people like just the mere restriction that they can't have a good time right now is making them more sort of down and you know sort of fearful of the future. Even though we've only been sort of in, uh, uh, it'll be about a month next week since it's kind of started um, in Pakistan in sort of large numbers. Um, so I think we have a long way to go right now, at least a month or so more before we can safely say that we're out of the woods.
1: What what is the the then, broader the broader content? It was interesting that you mentioned that uh, people started becoming aware of this because of the the. Connections with Iran, and I'm wondering about this sort yeah. of general, um, you know, what's so your? There
0: is a narrative. So a, a, a lot of, uh, I mean, like, I guess because I'm, I'm an economist, I like to tra- take everything with sort of a grain of salt. <laughs> uh, but there are two kinds of narratives spread that why the coronavirus is spreading in Pakistan. Because normally in in Pakistan, most of uh, the areas are sort of small towns. So this is an international virus. Most of these people have never even seen an airplane. Okay. So they feel like there are two ways that this is spreading. One is that Iran is right next door. and A lot of people had gone for religious pilgrimage in these days. So when those people returned, they were already infected. But because it takes 14 days for the incubation period of the virus, they managed to make it back into their hometowns and without sort of realizing that they already had corona and then the second uh, thing is that um, in in march april right before uh, the holy month ramzan there's a there's a huge religious sort of uh, event that's held for 3 days all across the country Um, in which they basically preach about Islam, etc. So some of the religious scholars had just come from a bigger religious event in Malaysia, Thailand, etc. So they came back and held their event as usual, even though the government requested them not to. And uh, so these are the two main places where the government is sort of sending the narrative that this is where corona has come from and then there are also isolated cases of people who've returned from uk from dubai sort of on vacation but the percentage of those people is very low because as i told you the majority of the population can't even afford a meal for the day much less you know take a plane ticket somewhere
1: yeah and i imagine when you're when your immediate economic needs are so um elemental right Yeah, you're gonna take the chance of contracting the virus i mean you you have no choice
0: yeah and just generally like i I was telling you that we are not used to like grocery being delivered to a house i am not used to grocery being delivered to my house i have like basically i've still gone out and gotten groceries so you can imagine like you know where 70 80 percent of the population they, they don't even have money to pay for the groceries how will they have money to pay for the delivery of the groceries you know they'll still have to get out and go to their local sort of market and get food if they want their kids and their parents to eat
1: well hannah thank you for taking the time to chat to me and to give me that perspective i really appreciate it
0: no no it was it's great having you and i i didn't even get to mention how much i love masterchef australia on this which I have been re-watching these days. In I, you know, I'm very never, sad about the three judges leaving.
1: Never, I've never seen a single episode of MasterChef Australia. So.
0: Oh my God, there are 11 seasons. You're totally missing out, by the way. <laughs> and you get to see so much of Australia's natural beauty in it also, which I really like how they sort of plug in everything about all the places you should visit in Australia.
1: Well, you'll have to come and visit then when this is all Yeah, over. yeah, definitely. Let's
0: yeah. see, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful.
1: <laughs> Hannah Zahir is an economist. She's a specialist in gender issues and works for the Center for Economic Research in Pakistan.